From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Nearly 10 years ago, Sandy Phillips lost her daughter in the Aurora Theater shooting. And just weeks ago, Phillips was in Buffalo helping survivors of that shooting when she learned about what happened in Uvalde. I want to say it's unbelievable, but it's not. It's predictable and it's preventable. We'll talk with Phillips about how she thinks mass shootings can be prevented and what she does to help other grieving families prepare for the challenges they'll face. Then using digital technology to preserve endangered languages. That identify who we are as people, as Native people. You know, your culture and language is what makes you distinct. Later, a new exhibit at History Colorado brings the state's LGBTQ history alive for everyone. Hi, I'm CPR's President Stuart Vanderwilt. I'm taking just a moment to speak to all of our valued members and to thank you for your continued support of Colorado Public Radio. The news and music services you rely on continue to grow to better serve communities across the state because of your generosity. Your membership matters, and we are so grateful for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Sandy Phillips sees the pain caused by mass shootings through a very personal lens. Her own daughter, Jessie, was murdered along with 11 others at an Aurora movie theater in 2012. Phillips and her husband have been on the road ever since crisscrossing the country. They've been on a crusade to help survivors of mass shootings. She was in Buffalo last month when she heard about the news in Uvalde. Hi, Sandy. Hi there. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Describe where you were when you heard about the shooting in Uvalde. That shooting left 19 children and two teachers dead. We were uh, on the corner, literally standing on a corner uh, with a a grassroots organization uh, organizer uh, from Buffalo. And um, he had just introduced me to a father whose daughter had hidden in a freezer um, at the Tops supermarket shooting. Um, and we were having a conversation, talking about what comes next and how he and his family were doing. And my phone started um, blowing up. Mm. And um, I looked at the organizer and I said, um, you know, this is number 19 for us. And number 20 is happening right now. And we're going to have to go and return after we're finished down in Uvalde. And um literally left him, packed a bag, got on an airplane, and flew down to Uvalde. What was it like being in Uvalde? You know, my husband and I say that each one of them are the same yet very different. Um, And this one was a watershed moment. Our first response after Jesse was killed in July of 2012 was um, uh, Sandy Hook in December of 2012. Um, So I always thought that that was going to be the one that really took me to my knees. But I will tell you that what happened in Uvalde, um, I'm still processing and I'm I'm having difficulty, quite frankly, uh, even though I know how to care for myself emotionally. 
uh, I'm having a great deal of difficulty putting all this in its place because I am so outraged. And was part of it the fact that these were very young children? Yes, it's always, you know, whenever we lose our children or our children, or I don't like the word lose, I like the word taken. Whenever our children are taken and taken violently from our society, it, it always cuts to the core of who we are as a humanity. And um, it doesn't speak very well for us at the moment. So children, uh, the fact that there was um, not a sufficient response um, that the whole community, it's a small community. Uh, we're from San Antonio, so we know Uvalde well. And it's a small community and everyone knows everyone. It's really literally one degree of separation or relation. Um, everyone down there knows each other or they're related to one another. So seeing the devastation on the entire community um, was just totally devastating and knowing that they're not getting the support and the help that they need uh, immediately, that we're having to fight to get them the things that they need, um, is really difficult to, to watch and be a part of. And more specifically, how would you describe their emotions right now? Uh, well, they're still in shock. I mean, they're, they're, right now they're dealing with the shock of having so many children taken from their community. Um, and they're dealing with the anger of knowing that their uh, law enforcement did not respond, apparently, um, as well as they should have, could have. And then to be lied to by the elected officials from the state, um, it's really uh, what they're just learning now is going to affect them for the rest of their lives in the community forever. Um, but right now, they're still in that early stage of shock and anger. A lot of it is about how law enforcement didn't storm the classroom uh, right away and took a long time. Yes. Yes. You mentioned and those parents that were staying. Those parents that were standing outside that school were hearing their children being killed, um, and they have to also deal with the trauma on that level, on top of having that the child taken. Do you have a way, uh, after all this time, of keeping your own emotions in check? Yes, I, I, I do, and I'm very grateful to the mindfulness community and uh, the PTSD treatments that I had early on after Jesse was taken. I was very lucky to find a, a really wonderful trauma uh, therapist early on and then went into the mindfulness world later on. And that has really um, helped me to deal with the activation and the responses from my PTSD. I think PTSD is something that you always have. It's just how you deal with it and how you manage it. It's, it's almost like a disease that needs to be managed. Of course, you're there to console these families, but you also have a very practical agenda. You help families uh, actually prepare for what's going to come in the future. What do they need to know? Well, after Jessie was killed, we were in Texas and she was in Colorado. So 
we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what was going on. Um, within just a few weeks, we were learning that there were people saying that the shooting had never happened and that Jesse was uh, never existed and was a false flag. And we were just coming to take their guns. And uh, we heard about charities that were raising uh, monies using the pictures of our children and had no intention of getting those monies to the families. We had to fight hard for that. And that still happens every shooting. Both of those things happen in every shooting. Um, and then the lawyers who come in and they want you to join a lawsuit or a class action suit and um, not knowing what that was like or what it was about and, and getting duped, quite frankly, into a lawsuit that should never have been filed. Um, so we, wear, we, we go in and we have a, it's sad that we have to have a survivor toolkit, but we have a survivor toolkit that we worked uh, on with Giffords. Um, and we give that to as many people as possible in this community is the whole community needs to have this because they don't know what's coming at them and they don't know how to navigate um, because they've never been in this position. So we try to take a little of the sting uh, of the continuing trauma uh, away. You know, it's like putting a Band-Aid on an open wound, but we're still trying to, to help them navigate this new world of theirs, uh, this new life of theirs, because the old one is gone. When did you and Lonnie, your husband, decide to dedicate your lives to this? It was when we responded to Sandy Hook and we saw um, the parents walking into the community center where we were going to be meeting with them. And uh, we took one look at them and I turned to my husband and he said, we looked exactly like that five months ago. And I knew then that we could offer help and assistance. In fact, we have some great stories from that time um, of people that we met and then continued to meet through months and months after Sandy Hook that um, never remembered us. They remembered what we had to say, but they didn't remember us. So one lady, uh, well, Francine Wheeler, it took her four times to meet us before she went, oh my gosh, you're those people. So it was <laughs> kind of a funny story, but it also um, tells you what trauma does to us and how we're only able to absorb so much information in those early uh, hours, weeks, and months. By now, you know these scenes so well. Do they have a sameness about them? Yes, they do. Um, there's always the, the, the memorials that go up. Um, there's always the Red Cross that shows up and become um, gatekeepers, which is always frustrating. Um, Billy Graham always shows up. Uh, so the yes, but now there are more and more of the people who have actually lived through these horrible uh, mass shootings that are showing up as well that want to lend a hand, that want to help us help others. So we're we're seeing time, uh, the 10 years, uh, people who have healed um, are wanting to do more and more for the survivors, which is a wonderful thing. What else has changed in the last 10 years? Well, certainly our laws haven't, uh, you know, mm -hmm. unfortunately at a national level. 
um, and that's frustrating. Um, so, you know, what hasn't changed are, are the laws that can protect our children and our society from the weapons of war that are so popular among mass shooters. How hard is that for you, not seeing any progress over that time? You know, it's very frustrating because we know that when we had an assault weapons ban in place, we didn't have the same amount of mass shootings that we have now. Uh, we know that this is a country that is far beyond any other civilized country in the world when it comes to gun deaths overall. So, you know, when people say, oh, we're number one, well, yeah, this we are number one, and that's not a good thing to be number one about. So, um, you know, we just keep going, and, and we keep talking to everyone that we possibly can, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. Uh, we don't care. Well, let's have that conversation. Let's talk about what these weapons do. I mean, when, when that doctor talked about the pulverized children and the decapitated children um, at Uvalde, which we had heard as a rumor while we were there, and I couldn't get verification. So to have him testify the other day on that was just haunting. I will be haunted by that forever because I too know what those bullets did to my daughter and how her body was pulverized and the, 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 the damage that was done to her beautiful face because she received a bullet in her left orbital that left a five inch hole in her skull and her pretty face. And that, that's something that these parents now get to live with and deal with and be traumatized by for the rest of their lives. Um, so we have to do whatever we can to make it real to America to hear, not to see, but to hear uh, what these bullets do to a human body, because that's what they're designed to do. So each time you see these images, you must re-experience the trauma with your daughter. How do you keep from he feeling hopeless? Well, I just, I guess I'm stubborn. My daughter was stubborn <laughs> and she, she was tenacious. And I think both my husband and I both are tenacious. It's, it's not so much for us about uh, showing up in DC and, you know, having our pictures taken with politicians. When that happens, that's always nice, but it's not important to us. What's important is that we're doing what we can to help survivors um, become productive citizens again after this has happened to them. And without support and uh, financial help, um, they often fall into poverty, um, alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, all the things that make our society a much weaker society. So we're trying our best to get Congress to understand that and the support that these people need, both uh, emotionally and financially, as they move forward in their lives. Sandy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it very much. 
Sandy Phillips and her husband Lonnie founded Survivors Empowered after their daughter was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting in 2012. Jessie Gowie was working as an intern in sports radio. She was 24. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. are out for this year's primary election in Colorado, and nearly everyone gets to participate. Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated. Who's running? What are the issues? How do you cast your vote? I'm Megan Verlee from the CPR Newsroom. Find out what you need to know to fill out your ballot online at CPR.org. And on Tuesday, June 28th, hear full coverage of the primary here on CPR News and on the Colorado Public Radio app. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Experts predict the world could lose half of its languages in the next hundred years. That's the language of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe in the Four Corners region of Colorado. Only 100 people still speak it fluently. To save their language, the Ute Mountain Ute created a digital dictionary. Juanita Plentyholes is the project coordinator with the Ute Mountain Ute tribe. That was her voice you just heard. Will Maya is with the Language Conservancy. It preserves endangered languages. I spoke with them in January. Juanita... Quick translation, you just said in Ute, if we don't preserve our language now, it will die in the future. How did you learn to speak Ute? Well, I learned growing up because I was born in 62, so everybody spoke Ute. Ute was spoken everywhere. Uh, My grandfather, my uncles, my mom just spoke Ute, so I grew up in that. Um, my mom never went to school, and she spoke Ute till the day she died. She never spoke English at all. I just learned it, you know, just hearing it all the time growing up. So it was just a part of me. How would you describe the language? It's really descriptive, and it's really long. It's not short. Do you think that's reflected in culture, um, how folks sit down and converse? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you talk to an elder, you'll sit there for a long time because they'll just talk and talk. Did you teach your children to speak you? That's one thing I did not do. Um, you know, and a lot of parents, they, they're just so busy with work and, you know, the daily life. And my kids know things. They don't really speak Ute. And um, my older kids, they're half Lakota, so they really, um, my oldest son has really engaged in that. And so now he has a, an elder Lakota mentor in Albuquerque where he lives. So they meet together all the time, and my son has become fluent in Lakota. And so his teaching, his my grandsons are learning that. And then they learn a little bit of Ute words here and there. How worried are you about the future of the Ute language? I mean, I think Ute is spoken in every household here, but not fluently. So they know little words and phrases. It's just important that we 
let them know how important the language is to us because it identifies who we are as people, as Native people. You know, your culture and language is what makes you distinct. So, you know, this work is important to me because we need to get it preserved somehow. So even if we don't teach it in our homes down the road, who knows? It may, nobody may even speak Ute anymore. But somewhere down the road, someone is going to have a question. You know, maybe a child 20 years down the road, if we don't speak Ute anymore, they're going to say, I wonder how the Utes talked. I wonder how they said things. And then here we'll have it preserved. It'll be here for them. Well, let's bring you in here. One study estimates that the world loses a language every 40 days. Do you agree with Juanita that the Ute language is in danger of going away if nothing's done? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we work with over 50 endangered languages in uh, North America, and, you know, we see firsthand, uh, just as Juanita was describing, how um, the different generations have different levels of fluency and proficiency in their languages. You know, we can go back almost to the year itself that the natural intergenerational language transmission stopped happening. And for most tribes in the United States, that was somewhere in the mid-1950s. So basically what that means is from, you know, 1954 onwards, that is, people born after 1954 were going to be primarily English language first language speakers. And so then what what happens is that the, the language isn't reproducing itself. No new speakers are being created. And the real number of speakers is actually peaked in the mid-1950s, and then it's in a slow decline since then as, you know, uh, people naturally pass on. And just as Juanita was describing, you know, the average speaker age is, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Um, currently, right now in Wyoming, working on a project uh, with another tribe uh, for the Shoshone, and we are uh, working with speakers that are in their late 80s and 90s. So you've helped assemble this digital dictionary. Can you describe what it is? Uh, yeah. So the uh, we put together a program uh, using a, a method called the rapid word collection method that, working with about uh, 20 elders, we were able to collect, over the course of about two years, about 10,000 words. Uh, and we used computers and other kinds of specialized software to record uh, these words across 1,700 domains or categories. These essentially represent the entire universe of Ute, uh, everything from you know, plants and animals to prayers and medicines and uh, feelings and uh, all the other pieces of, of life and its, and its experience. And we tried to do a, a very thorough job of documenting that. And uh, essentially taking those uh, recordings and those transcriptions, we were able to transform that into uh, different things that could be utilized by students, including an online dictionary, an app that can be downloaded onto the phone, and also uh, eventually a print dictionary. Juanita, how do you say thank you? Dobayak. Dobayak. I don't think I got it, but thank you for being with us. Yeah. Thank you very much for, you know, inviting us to come on and interviewing us on this work that's important to us. Will, thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. 
Juanita Plenty holds of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in the Four Corners region. She's project manager for the tribe's new digital dictionary. Will Maya is chairman of the Language Conservancy. We spoke in January. A new exhibit at History Colorado in Denver opens this week. Its aim is to bring the state's LGBTQ plus history alive for everyone. It celebrates the contributions these Coloradans have made to the fabric of our culture. CPR's Eden Lane reports. When Aaron Marcus started collecting artifacts for History Colorado's Rainbow and Revolutions, what stood out to him was how much he didn't know about LGBTQ plus history in Colorado. Like the 1973 revolt on city council, for instance, I had no idea about that. A lot of the women from Big Mama Rag and Woman to Woman Bookstore, like T. Shook, all these people were involved in this activism that I was not aware of. And I feel like we take for granted that these people, a lot of their lives are ruined fighting for rights. The new exhibit about the history of activism and challenges in the Colorado LGBTQ plus community opened over the weekend at History Colorado. Marcus, an associate curator of LGBTQ plus history at the museum, focused on the modern gay rights movement since the 1970s, often cited as beginning with the Stonewall riots in New York City. When History Colorado's work began, there were 94 items in its LGBTQ plus collection. Now that total is over 500, with a lot more waiting to be catalogued and put on display. Choosing what to include in an exhibit with over 50 years of history and only 1,000 square feet available for display was difficult. Still, Marcus says its importance today is just as timely as when the modern movement began. I hope the exhibit shows that, yes, from the 1970s on, it's a huge time. We've made great strides, but nowhere near what we need to. I feel like you know, two steps forward, five back, because I've said this now a few times, that a lot of the um, magazine newspaper articles that I've seen, if you just change the date from 1970-something to 2022, it's the exact same story. And Marcus says he's trying to help people get over the idea that an exhibit that celebrates LGBTQ plus Coloradans isn't for them. I can honestly say we didn't take anything out. Does that make sense? We didn't dumb it down. What you see in the exhibit is what the donors have donated. So I did not go into this looking at, oh, I hope we don't offend this one person because I have to do right by the community. And I need them to see their stories. I need to honor what they've donated and interpret that correctly. Marcus hopes this direct approach lays a foundation for visitors to find something relatable. I feel like if we work together, this community, we can really become an inclusive community because unfortunately we're not yet. And I feel like we really could. I'm not saying this exhibit will do that, but if it's a start, all the better. For Marcus, curating the exhibit has meant hearing emotional stories behind many of the items. The key, he says, is to balance that emotion by providing a deeper historical context. The very first thing I brought in um, was a poster of a bar called 1942. And the guy who brought it in, his name is Steve, it meant a lot to him because it was his partner's poster. And his partner passed away from AIDS. 
And so this was really all he had. So as he brought the poster in and was signing the paperwork to donate it, he was crying. Like, this is how much this meant to him, and that needs to be honored. But Marcus says the history of some of the items can have more complicated and layered stories than the individual may know. So on the flip side of 1942, they are known for discrimination. They were picketed many times. It was a huge problem. And so for me to take this item that is so important to Steve, he met the love of his life at this bar, but then also have to tell that other side of the story, I hope it doesn't offend him. And there's a couple other instances in the exhibit like that, like Woman to Woman Bookstore. Kind of the same thing in the 1970s. They had to close down for three weeks and work through some um, racism claims. And so I want to tell the story how the donor remembers it, but I have a responsibility to show the other side. But it has to be shown because, again, it's still happening. I mean, that's I find it crazy to even think about that, yes, we've come a long way, and no, we haven't. Rainbows and Revolutions runs for six weeks. Marcus hopes the conversations it sparks will last much longer. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.